0: chapter of John's Gospel. And we'll read together verses 48 through the end of the chapter. The Jews answered and said to him, Do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father and you dishonor me. But I do not seek my glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, and the prophets also. And you say, If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Surely you're not greater than our father Abraham who died. The prophets died too. Whom do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. And you have not come to know him, but I know him. And if I say that I do not know him, I will be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You're not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Therefore they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Let's pray together. Our Father, we confess our need for your grace to understand your word. There are so many things in Your Word that are very clear, but they are difficult to understand. And we ask that You would give us grace in Your Spirit. Send Your Spirit to teach us this morning that we might understand all that is before us. That You would be glorified through the understanding of Your people and the obedience that we render to You, our most holy name. We ask that You would give us a vision and a sight of Christ. May we behold His glory today in the pages of Scripture and be transformed and transfigured by it. We ask this in His name. Amen. There may have been some times when you have been explaining the gospel to an unbeliever and in part of explaining the gospel to an unbeliever, you have come across this objection. They will say to you something like this. You mean to tell me that God is going to send me to hell just because I have never asked Jesus into my heart? That God sends people to hell just because they don't ask Jesus into their heart? You heard that objection? It does sound ludicrous to say to somebody, if you don't ask Jesus into your heart, God's going to send you to hell. If you have ever had that objection raised to you, it's probably due to one or two, or maybe one of these two, or maybe both of these reasons. First of all, because you have been unclear about the terms and conditions of the gospel offer. You realize that the gospel does not say, ask Jesus into your heart and be forgiven. It is not the terms of the gospel. The terms of the gospel are repentance and faith, that is turning from sin and believing upon what somebody else has done for us. We don't ask Jesus into our heart. That is not how He gets into our hearts. I'm not denying that Christ and the Spirit of Christ dwells within His people, but the question is, how does He get there? Does He get there because I ask Him to come in? Or does He get there because I turn from my sin and believe upon the Son, and I am born again by the power of the Spirit and given new life? That's how we are saved. So it might be you heard that, that objection because you failed to clearly communicate the terms of the gospel offer. Or it might be that you have failed to clearly communicate the problem with man in sin. You see, if you walk somebody through the law and show them where they stand before a very holy God, who is a just and righteous God, and you take people through the law and show them they're standing before God, that objection just disappears. Most people communicate the gospel and they say something like this, Jesus died for all of your sins. All of them. They're all died for. They're all paid for. You just need to ask Jesus into your heart to get that payment credited to your account. If you don't ask Jesus into your heart, then you're going to go to hell and you are going to be punished for not asking Jesus into your heart. Sinners are punished for unbelief. But really what do sinners what are sinners punished for in hell? Is it just not asking Jesus into their heart? That's certainly not just. Do you know why sinners are punished in hell? Because they are liars and they are thieves and they are blasphemers and they are fornicators and they are adulterers and they are idolaters and they are covetous and they are greedy and they are swindlers and they are homosexuals and they are effeminate and and the list goes on, right? Those are the sins for which an unbeliever is punished in hell. So if you ever hear that objection, it's probably because you have failed to communicate accurately and clearly the terms of the gospel offer or you have failed to communicate to people why it is that they would be punished in hell. That is not to say that rejecting Jesus is not a serious thing. It is very serious to reject Jesus. Not because we need to ask Him into a heart. It is serious to reject Him because of who He is. You see, Jesus is God manifested in the flesh. He is the eternal divine Son. He is God. He is the God who appeared to Abraham. He is the God who Isaiah saw. He is the God whom Ezekiel saw. He is the eternal I Am. So to reject Jesus is to reject God. To rebel against Him and to persist in unbelief is to persist in unbelief against God. So those who persist in unbelief and live as, re- live as rebels should not be surprised that they get what is due to rebels, and that is the punishment of hell. But it is not believing in any Jesus that saves us. You can't just believe in any Jesus and be saved. You have to believe in the right Jesus to be saved. You cannot believe in a Jesus who is the first and greatest creation of God, who had a beginning, like Jehovah's Witnesses teach, and be saved. And you can't believe in a Jesus who had a beginning and is the spirit brother of Lucifer and was created by Elohim on the planet Kolob, as the Mormons teach. You can't believe that and be saved. You can't believe in a Jesus who is an Eastern mystic, a liberal, hippie, 70's style, granola crunching, social justice spouting guru, and expect to be saved. There are a thousand ideas of who Jesus was. There is one truth about who Jesus was. And to believe in the wrong Jesus is to lose your soul for all of eternity, no matter how sincere you are and no matter how strongly you believe it. That's why Jesus said in John 8, 24, You will die in your sins, for I say to you, unless you believe that I am, ego I me, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. There is doctrinal content that must be in place in our belief about Jesus. It's not sufficient to simply believe in a Jesus idea. A Jesus tradition or a Jesus notion, we must be believing and putting our faith in the one who is the real, actual, historical Jesus, and we must believe the truth. It is the truth that sets men free, right? You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. It's not you shall know some concept of Jesus that you fabricate in your own mind, and that will save you. That cannot save you. If you believe in the wrong Jesus, you might as well believe in a rock, because it has as much power to save you. The Jesus that. A person might fabricate in their own mind has no power to save them because that Jesus does not exist. He is a fabrication of their mind. We must believe in the right Jesus and must believe something specific about who Jesus actually is. There is doctrinal content connected with our faith. See, friends, it is not faith that saves you. It's not faith that saves you. It is the object of your faith that saves you. And there is an ocean of difference between those two things. It does not matter how strong your faith is. It doesn't matter how sincere your faith is. If your faith is placed in an object that is insufficient to the task of saving you, it is a wasted faith. It doesn't matter how strongly you believe it or how sincerely you believe it. And contrary to what Oprah would tell you, it is not just the presence of a faith that gives you a relationship with God. However you describe that faith and however you might flesh that faith out or live that faith out. There are people who would say, just as long as you have faith, you have a relationship with God. No, no. It doesn't matter how sincere it is. It doesn't matter how strong it is. What matters is the object. A weak faith in a strong object is a strong faith. A weak faith, even a faltering faith, even a shaking faith, that is placed in a strong object, that is God, as He is, is a, is a faith that is mighty to save because it is not the strength of my faith. It is the one in whom I have believed. I can have all the faith in the world and put it in a rock to save me. It will do me no good. I can have a weak faith and a faltering faith and a shaky faith and a brand new faith. And if I place it in the object who is God in human flesh, it is mighty to save. Not because of the faith itself, but because of the one in whom I have believed. I know, therefore, in whom I have believed, and I know that he is able to keep what I have committed to him against that day. It is the one whom I have believed That saves me, not the presence of my belief. So the issue then is, what Jesus do you and I trust in? Who is this Jesus? And that is answered for us in John chapter 8, where we are turning today. We left off at verse 53 with this question that they asked him. There are two questions, really. You're not greater than Abraham, are you? The answer to that is obviously yes. And the second question, whom do you make yourself out to be? Now, verses 54 through the end of the chapter, and we're going to take all of it, verses 54 through the end of the chapter. Jesus answers the question that they give Him in verse 53. Whom do you make yourself out to be? He's answering that question. He's going to do it two ways. He's going to, first of all, describe His relationship with the Father in verses 54 through 56. And then in verses 57 through the end of the chapter, verse 59, He is going to declare His equality with the Father. He's going to describe His relationship with the Father. Then He is going to declare His equality with the Father. And this we're taking such a big passage this morning because, normally don't do this, but because, There's really nothing new in these verses that Jesus has already said earlier in this discourse. And if you've been tracking with us and following along, then there's not going to be any new material. Jesus is presenting what He has already presented, but when He presented it previously, they object, they criticize, they name-call, all of that. Jesus is going right back to the basics and He's saying, i told you once, if I've told you once, I've told you a thousand times, here is the truth. Here is my relationship with the Father. And then at the end of the chapter, even when He says, I am, He is not telling them anything that He has not told them already earlier in John 8. He said it in John 8, verse 24. He said it in John 8, verse 28, that He is the eternal I Am of God. So let's look first of all at Jesus explaining or, des- or describing His relationship to the Father. And as we work our way through these verses, you're going to notice four things really which are indicative of His relationship with the Father. Four things, and we'll, go, we'll I'll point them out as we get there. The first is that He is glorified by the Father. Now look at verse 54. Jesus said, or answered, If I glorify Myself, My glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. Now, Jesus already said that back in verse 50. when He said in verse 50, I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Back in chapter 5, Jesus described Himself as one who did not come to do His own initiative or to fulfill His own agenda, to do His own will. and did nothing on His own initiative, only what the Father gives me. And here He says twice in chapter 8, I'm not seeking my own glory. Now in this chapter, they, these Jews would have understood him to be claiming to be someone great. Why is that? Because earlier, just a couple sentences prior, Jesus said, If you keep my word, if you obey me, you'll never see death. That's a magnificent promise, isn't it? No ordinary man could claim that. Isaiah couldn't claim that. Jonah couldn't claim that. Moses couldn't claim that. Abraham could not make that claim. That if you obey me, you will never see death. What a marvelous claim. And the Jews would have understood him to be claiming to be somebody great, which is why they asked him, Whom do you make yourself out to be? Who do you think you are? This is, a, this is a statement or a claim that Noah and Moses and Abraham and none of the prophets ever could have made. Who do you think you are? They understood him to be claiming to be somebody great. And he was claiming to be somebody great. But he is not there to seek his own glory. He wasn't there to advance his own cause, which is why he says, I'm not after my own glory. And this is the humility of our Lord. He wasn't seeking his own fame and his own glory because he knew that self-glory is no glory at all. Self-glory, when men seek glory from other men, from one another, horizontal glory, is it really glory? No, it's it's fleeting. It's fleeting. Who was Vice President of the United States in 1859? Anybody know, top of your head? Nobody knows. Listen, at one time he was Vice President of the United States. Who is he today? Does anybody know? Nobody knows. Nobody knows. Who came after Rutherford B. Hayes? What, is there one person here who knows that? Does anybody know that? Does anybody care? Has anybody thought about that in the last week? That's all man-made glory. Jesus doesn't seek after man-made glory. Because people who seek after glory from other men, they are pretenders, they are charlatans, they are frauds, they are liars, they are deceivers, they're after their own fame and honor. And the Son didn't come for that reason. He didn't come to seek His own glory. He came to seek and pursue the glory of the Father. He came in humility, not to do His own will, but the will of the Father who sent Him. He came not to speak His own words, but the words of the Father. Not to do His own works, but the works of the Father. Everything He did was for the Father's glory. If Jesus was interested in glory, He could have stayed in heaven. He was being worshipped by Abraham and the angels for thousands of years. He could have enjoyed that glory. But He came here not to pursue His own glory, but to pursue the glory of the Father. But look what He says in John 8 verse 54. He not pursuing his own glory, because if he did, his glory would be vain, it would be empty, it would be nothing. it's meaningless human glory. but it is my Father who glorifies me. Jesus is glorified by the Father. How did the glory? How did the Father glorify the Son? The Father glorified or honored the Son by sending him into the world by giving Him works to do, by giving Him miracles to perform, by giving Him words to speak. The Father has glorified the Son by giving Him a name which is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue will confess in heaven and earth that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The Father has glorified the Son by making Him the heir of all things, by giving Him a kingdom by committing all judgment to the Son, as John 5.23 says, so that all will honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. The Father, God, is pursuing the glory of His Son. Imagine this relationship, that the Son is not pursuing His own glory. He wants to honor the Father, who is above Him in authority, in the Trinity. But the Father is pursuing the glory of His Son. He wants His Son honored. What type of a... What type of a leader is it that submits his glory and recognition to a subordinate? And the son is his subordinate in terms of his authority. That the father would do this. That the father would pursue his son's glory and recognition. Isn't that marvelous? Isn't that marvelous? How humble God is. How self-effacing our God is. Even the father, that he would pursue the glory of his son and do everything he is doing for the glory of his son and not seek it for himself. And the son wants to glorify the Father. That's why you have in 1 Corinthians 15 that marvelous statement that at the end of time when even death is subjected to the Son, that the Son is going to receive everything and everything will become His. And the first act that He does as the King who rules over all of this creation, having subjected all things to Himself, He turns around and he gives it back to the Father so that God may be all in all. Everything is given to the Son as a love gift and the Son turns around and gives it all back to the Father as a love gift so that God will be glorified. But the Son didn't come pursuing His own glory. He came to pursue the glory of the Father. And the Father then glorifies the Son. Now what does that tell you about the identity of the Son? Well, If you're a Jew, you're familiar with Isaiah where God says, I will not give my glory to another. God does not glorify anybody but himself. Do you know why? Because that would be idolatry. For God to put his glory and manifest and magnify a mere mortal above himself would be idolatry. God is the most glorious being. And for God to give that glory to another is idolatrous. It is, it is to give a lesser thing, something that belongs only to God. So if Jesus is able to say, I'm not pursuing my own glory, it is the Father who glorifies me, what does that say about the Son? He is equal to the Father. Because God does not give His glory to another. And yet Jesus can say in John 17, Father, glorify me with the glory which I had with you before the world even was. The Son can ask for and the Son can expect glory equal with the Father's. Not because He is pursuing it on His own agenda, but because it is the Father's will to glorify the Son and God shares His glory with nobody. So the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all receive glory and God does not share that with any being that is lesser than God. And if the Father glorifies the Son, it is only because the Son is God. So God glorifies Him. He is glorified by His Father. The second thing is He knows the Father. Look at the rest of verse 56. Of whom you say He is our God, and you have not come to know Him. But I know Him, and if I say that I do not know Him, I will be a liar like you. But I do know Him, and I keep His word. The Son knows the Father. In fact, the Son knows the Father from eternity past in an intimate way that nobody else could ever claim knowledge of the Father. And that's what Jesus is saying. This God who glorifies me is the one whom you say He is our God, but you have not come to know Him. I have come to know Him. And if I say that I don't know Him, I'll be a liar like you. What was their lie? What was the lie that they were saying in the context? Can you pick it up? They were saying, we know God. He is our Father. And Jesus is saying, God is not your Father. You do not know God. That's the lie. When you claim to know God and you do not, that is a lie. You have believed a lie and you have then told a lie. This goes on today, by the way. You'll meet people all over the place who say who have nothing to do with Jesus. They've never repented. They've never trusted in Him. They have no relationship with Him. They're not in the least bit interested in honoring Christ. But they will say to you, I know God. We have a a personal, close, intimate relationship with each other. I know God well. Yeah, I have no time for His Son. But I I have my own Jesus and I have my own God and, and I'm in touch with the divine. They're liars. That's a lie. They believed a lie. You should feel sorry for them. I mean, don't beat them over the head and call them liars. You should feel sorry for them. Because they have believed a lie, and now they have told a lie. That's what these men are doing. And Jesus is using a Hebrew figure of speech, and he is saying, this is how far apart you and I are. You claim to know God, and you don't, and you're liars. Now, I really do know God. And if I claim that I don't, like you, make a false claim, then I would be a liar just like you. But I do know him. I do know him. He knows the Father, doesn't he? John 1.18, John says that this only begotten, or this one unique God, he's talking about Jesus, in John one eighteen, the only unique God is in the bosom of the Father, and He has explained the Father to us. This Son knows the Father from eternity past, intimately, perfectly, without fault, without failure, without any, uh, without any ignorance whatsoever. This is how the Son knows the Father, and He knows Him intimately, and if He claims to not, if He were to concede the point that they had made that He was a demon-possessed Samaritan, He would have been a liar. That was what their claim was. You don't know God. If He was a Samaritan, He was an idolater, and if He was demon-possessed, He certainly did not have an intimate knowledge of the Father, that was their claim, and Jesus now is answering their claim. If I confess to that, if I admit that, or even concede one iota of that, I would be a liar just like you're a liar. Earlier, he had implied that, they, applied that, implied that they were liars, and now he comes right out and states it. Earlier, he said, you have your father the devil, you do the desires of your father, and what did their father want to do always? He was a liar. He was a murderer from the beginning. He was a liar from the beginning. He was the father of lies. The implication there was, you're liars. Now he comes right out and says it. You are liars. And if I deny my knowledge of God, I would be a liar just like you. So, the Father glorifies Him. He, that is Jesus, knows the Father. The third thing that demonstrates His relationship, look at verse 56, or it's the end of verse 55 actually. I do know Him and I keep His Word. He keeps the Father's Word. I do know the Father and I keep the Father's Word. Jesus Christ was completely and always obedient to the Father. Earlier He said, I always do those things which are pleasing to the Father. Everything that the Father has given me to do, I do. I am perfectly obedient And all that I do is in obedience to the Father. This is the, this is the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ that he is describing. Never did anything sinful. He never in any way failed to do the Father's will. When he woke up every morning from morning until the next morning, he did always and only the will of the Father so that he could say, I keep his word. And that's in contrast to them. They did not keep the Father's word, but Jesus did. He was always obedient. There's two Two real implications there, and I want you to kind of pin these down in your mind. Every time you read about Jesus keeping the Father's Word, I want you to, I want you to remember or recognize a couple of things. One of them is that connection that that has with the Gospel. The perfect obedience of Jesus to the Gospel. This is the mark of a believer. First. This is the mark of a believer. That they're obedient to the Father's will. That doesn't mean as believers that we're always perfectly obedient, does it? As long as I'm in this body of death, this body that is rotting in front of you, as long as I'm in this body of death and sin, I'm never going to be completely obedient to the Father. But the inclination of my heart is always toward obedience. It's the joy of a believer to obey. It is the the desire of a believer to obey. That is the mark of a believer is that they are pursuing and aiming and pointing and, and going after obedience. Not like the Jews who did not obey God. The mark of a believer is obedience. And the second thing you ought to pin in your mind, not only is the mark of a believer obedience, and Jesus is saying, my, my knowledge and relationship with God are evidenced by the fact that I keep His Word. And if you know God, you will keep and obey His Word. You will you will yield obedience. But the second thing is the this is the ground of the Gospel. Do you realize that? Every time you read in Scripture that Jesus was obedient to the Father, He did the Father's will, He went in obedience, He always pleased the Father, you should always remember That is, that obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ is imputed to me as a believer. His obedience becomes my obedience. The ground, one of the pillars of the ground of the gospel is the obedience of the Son on our behalf. So that I am saved not by my obedience. I am saved by the obedience of another. Entirely. So am I obedient to the Father always as I should be? No, but that's not the ground of my salvation, nor is it the ground of my assurance. The ground of my salvation and my assurance is the fact that another was obedient to the Father fully on my behalf. And when I place my faith in Jesus Christ and I am in Him, my sin is imputed to Him and all of His perfect obedience and righteousness becomes mine so that the Father sees me as if I had lived the perfectly obedient life that Jesus lived. That's the ground of the Gospel, the obedience of Christ. He kept the Father's Word. So the Father glorified Him. He knew the Father. He kept the Father's Word. And this fourth one, and this is a bit more difficult. He fulfilled the Father's promise. Look at verse 56. Your Father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Your Father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, he saw it and was glad. Now here's the question. This is a bit difficult to kind of interpret and to figure out what exactly is Jesus talking about. Because there's really two questions at the heart of verse 56. What is Jesus' day when he says, Your Father Abraham rejoiced to see my day? What day Is Jesus describing and second when or how did Abraham see it what day is being is Jesus mean there and when or how did Abraham see it let me give you a couple of a couple of options I don't think that either one of these really fits the bill but I'll give you the third one which I think is actually the way this should be understood some people have understood this to be a reference to Genesis 18 and 19. Do you remember when the angel of the Lord and, uh, two other men appeared to Abraham and Abraham went and he slaughtered the goat, uh, the, the lamb, presented the meal, baked the bread and everything and pre- presented a meal for these and that's when he got the prophecy one year before Isaac's birth that about this time next year, uh, Sarah will be with child and, and will, you'll have a son. And that will be the fulfillment of the promise that I promised you back in Genesis chapter 12 where I promised you a land and a seed and a people and all of that. Um, and, Sarah laughed, and Abraham then had Isaac, and he named named him Isaac, which was laughter. So some people say, well, that's probably what he was referring to there, was that in Isaac really was the fulfillment of the promise. And so when Jesus appeared to Abraham that day, Abraham was filled with joy because he got to see Jesus on that day. So the day then would be the one back in Genesis 18. And the rejoicing would be Abraham then expressing joy at the promise of God given him by the angel of the Lord in Genesis 18. That's possible. It seems a bit limited to suggest that that was one, the one event that Jesus is here referring to, is just that, that one event in the life of Abraham. I think it's a bit narrow. I, I don't really think it works with the context. There's a second possibility. It's possible that what Jesus is referring to, some suggest, is that after Abraham died, he went to heaven, and there he saw Jesus. Right? Now, after Abraham died, he went to heaven, he saw Jesus. Sometime after that, Jesus, the second person, came down to earth in the person of Jesus Christ. And so Abraham's rejoicing then is seeing Jesus in paradise for all of that time. The problem with that is that the past tense use of the word rejoicing seems to indicate a time period during the life of Abraham, not something after he lived in paradise. It seems that Jesus is referring to something that happened in in Abraham's lifetime that he is rejoicing over. So here's what I think Jesus is talking about. Jesus is talking about Abraham looking forward to the promise that he was given and beholding from afar that promise and rejoicing in it. So the day of Jesus, or Jesus' day, in verse 56, would be a reference to the coming of the Messiah or the arrival of the Messiah. Now, let me work this out for you, flesh it out a little bit, and you can see why this would be. Abraham was given a promise, and he responded to that promise by faith. He believed God, and it was credited to him for righteousness. And that faith saved Abraham, and by faith, Abraham saw something that did not exist as if it did exist. In fact, Abraham's faith is described in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13, when the writer to Hebrews says, all these died in faith. Now, he just gone through Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Sarah, and then he concludes that by saying, all of these, that is, Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Sarah, all of these died in faith without receiving the promises. But having seen them, that is, having seen the promises from afar, and having welcomed them from a distance, having welcomed the promises, they died and having confessed that they were strangers and aliens and exiles in the land. So the author of Hebrews is saying, Abraham, by faith, looked forward to the promise, and he believed that promise with faith that said, I believe it. He didn't receive it, but he looked forward, he saw it, he apprehended it, he believed it, and it was as if by faith, uh, the definition of faith, faith is the evidence of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. That's what faith is. Faith sees with the eyes of faith something that does not exist. I have not received this promise, but I believe I will, and I will bank on it and treat it as if it actually happened. And Abraham was able to rejoice in that. God said, I will send a deliverer through you. Abraham saw that. He saw the day of Christ looking forward 1,800 years, having never received the promise. Abraham saw it, and he rejoiced. The Messiah is coming. Because by the eyes of faith, Abraham saw that day as if it were taking place right in front of him. Not that he had a vision. That's not the idea. But that his hope was in that promise of God, which was a future event. And that future event, the day of the Messiah, Abraham rejoiced over it. Now contrast that with the Jews. Abraham looked forward in faith. Having never really seen it, he looked forward in faith. He apprehended it from afar and he rejoiced. These Jews saw the actual day and they rejected him. That's the contrast. Abraham rejoiced when he saw me come by faith, looking forward to and banking on the promises of God. It brought joy to his heart, having never seen it. You have rejected it. Abraham saw my day, and when he did, he was glad. Now they've misunderstood it, right? Again, they didn't get it. Look at verse 57. So the Jews said to him, You're not yet 50 years old and you've seen Abraham. Now Jesus claimed that he saw Abraham. Was that his claim? Read it carefully. What was his claim? Abraham saw me. That was what Jesus had said. Now what did Abraham? What did Jesus have in mind? Abraham looked forward in faith and he saw me. And they think if, you, if Abraham saw you, you must have seen Abraham. And here you're not even 50 years old. It's no indication about Jesus' age, by the way. There are early church fathers who said that this was an indication that Jesus was around 50 years old at the time. We know from the other gospel accounts that Jesus was about, it wasn't even 35, it was about 32, 33 at the time that this happened. So it's not an indication of his age. Here's what they're saying. 50 years old is what they considered the beginning of elder, of, uh, not being an elder, that's the wrong term. Uh, old age. The beginning of old age. That was when the Levites stopped their work in the temple. So they ceased, so they retired at the age of 50. And so here's what they're saying. You're not even old enough to be considered old age yet. And you've seen Abraham? This is, they're just mocking. This is, this is ludicrous. You're not even 50. And you've seen Abraham? That wasn't what Jesus had claimed, was it? What He had claimed? Abraham saw me by faith and he rejoiced. They misunderstood. You've seen Abraham? Now, had Jesus seen Abraham? Yeah, as a matter of fact, He had, right? That wasn't what He had said. But since you brought it up, it's true. He had seen Abraham. And He had seen Isaac and Jacob and Noah and Moses and Adam. And He had created all of them. And all of them, before He came to the earth, joined the angels in heaven, worshipping Him. He had seen Abraham. And then he says in verse 58, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, Ego, Emi, I am. Now where does that come from? We read it in Exodus chapter 3. Back when we studied verse 24 and 28 of John 8, we went through, we saw how that comes from Exodus chapter 3, what that word means, it's self-existent, the beginning and the creator of all being, the eternally existent one. Jesus is not just claiming pre-existence, He is actually claiming divinity, eternality. He is saying not before Abraham was, I was. In other words, I predated Abraham by a little bit, by God's creation. That's not what He is saying. He is saying before Abraham began to be, the error is tense, past tense, He had a beginning. Before Abraham began to be, I eternally was. I had no beginning. Not I was, not I have been, not I was for a period of time, but I am. And it comes from Genesis or Exodus chapter 3. We see it in Isaiah where God takes that title to himself as the great I am. And here is Jesus claiming eternal divinity. Before Abraham ever had a beginning, I have always existed. John 1 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God. The Word was God. Go back in time as far as your mind can take you back in time and you will find that the Word then existed. He was with God and He was God. He was with God and He was God. And all things were created by Him and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life and the life was the light of men. Jesus Christ is the eternally existing I Am. Now some people say Jesus never claimed to be God. Is that true? What is John 8.58? It is a claim to utter divinity. He is taking the covenant name of God, the I am, and is applying it to himself. Just as he says in verse 24, unless you believe this, you will die in your sins. You must believe that Jesus Christ is God in human flesh. And if you do not, you will die in your sins. Now you may say, what does somebody like a Jehovah's Witness do with John 8:58? 58? It's a good question, and I'm glad you asked. Let me tell you what they do with it. They have an entire translation of their Bible, the New World Translation, which completely misses the present tense of the verb, the present indicative of the verb, and masks its intention and masks its meaning when they translate it this way. Before Abraham came into existence, I have been. Now see, you and I would agree with the Jehovah's Witness this far in that Jesus pre-existed Abraham. But we would have to go further on the basis of Scripture's testimony and say, not only did Jesus pre-exist Abraham, Jesus pre-existed all things and He is the uncreated Creator. Not, I have been, I was before Abraham, but I am eternally existent, without beginning and without end. That is what Jesus is claiming. And the Jehovah's Witnesses say that should be translated, before Abraham came into existence, I have been. When I was in uh, my first year of Bible college, I got interested in the cults, not interested like, oh, I want to join one, but interested in is I want to study them. And so I began to study them and read up on Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, almost every cult that I could. I had Walter Martin's Kingdom of the Cults was like my Bible for a semester. I read that and studied up. And so during my second semester of Bible college, I sent away to all these organizations asking them for their literature. Hey, can I get a little bit of information about And I wanted to sort of build up my filing system. These were the days before internet. I know... A lot of younger kids can't even imagine such a day. But you couldn't just Google something. You had to write to them with this, this thing called postal mail where you put a stamp on it. You put it in the mail and you send it off and they actually send you back something. Well, that summer after Bible college, the Jehovah's Witnesses were kind enough to stop by my door for a little chat. And we had a couple of very interesting encounters. And I had, asked, I had read about in some of their literature and about them that they had this little book called Reasoning from the Scriptures. And it was basically the Jehovah's Witness answer book. And it contains the answer to any question or objection which you could possibly raise. So it's intended to go with them from door to door everywhere that they go on their door to door ministry. And if you ever ask them a question or stump them about a passage of scripture, you'll see one of them reach in while the other one starts talking to sort of distract you. They'll reach in, they'll pull out their little answer book, and they'll look up by index the passage of the question that you're asking. They'll flip to it, and then they will read you the answer. So I asked one of the Jehovah's Witnesses, can I get a copy of Reasoning from the scriptures from you? And I didn't expect that the Jehovah's Witnesses would give me their answer book. But they came back the next week with a copy of reasoning from the scriptures for me. Right? So here it is. This is the little piece of gold. If you ever see this at a garage sale, pick this up. Now you can imagine the benefit of knowing what a Jehovah's Witness is going to say before they even say it. Right? If you know the answer that they're going to give you, you can prepare to go past the answer that they give you. And so that's why I wanted to use this. I thought, okay, well this, this now I know what they're going to say to me when I bring up this question. I can prepare for what comes next. So I started reading and studying. This little handy book. And if you've ever stumped a Jehovah's Witness, if you get them past the answer in this book, they have nowhere to go but home. They are absolutely lost. This is their last resort. You stump them, they go to this. If you have an answer for this, they've got nowhere else to go. This little book is worth its weight in gold if Jehovah's Witnesses are visiting you. It's worth its weight in gold, trust me. I've seen these at garage sales, but I never pick them up because I already have one. I've actually stood on on the porch with Jehovah's Witnesses and stumped them. And they'll say, well, hold on a second, we got a resource. And they'll pull in, I, I know where they're going, right? And they'll pull it out and I'll say, oh, what does that say? And then they go through the process of flipping to it. I play ignorant, which is not very difficult for me to do most of the time. So I, here, let me tell you what they say about John 8, 58. It's on page 417, if you happen to have one of these at home. This is actually in a little section titled, Texts from which a person might draw more than one conclusion, depending on the Bible translation. Did you hear that? Text from which a person might draw more than one conclusion, depending on the Bible translation. So there are all of these seemingly confusing passages of Scripture that are dealt with in this section. One's like John 1, 1 and 2. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God. Depending on the translation that you're reading, you might draw more than one conclusion from that, so it's good to have a little answer. John 8:58 is here. Acts 20:28 20, that God purchased the church with his own blood. God purchased the church with God's own blood. Romans 9.5, which talks about Christ who is above all, God blessed forever. Uh, Philippians 2.5 and 6, Jesus Christ who existed in the form of God. They have a little answer for that one. Colossians 2.9, in Him dwells all the fullness of God in bodily form. That's Colossians 2.9. Titus 2.13, which calls Jesus Christ our great God and Savior. And then Hebrews 1.8, where the Father says to the Son, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Hebrews 1.8. And then 1 John 5.7, which is a textual variant. But anyway... John 8.58 is in here. Let me read you what the Jehovah's Witnesses say about John 8.58. Now, we've studied the passage, and I'm going to ask you to identify the error. It's not going to be, I don't think, that difficult if you've been paying attention. If you've been sleeping, you haven't been paying attention, then you're going to be lost, and I would recommend that you not raise your hand. John 8.58, the RS reads, this is what they say, the RS, which means Revised Standard, reads this, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. The Greek is ego, I mean, which they're correct on. And then they give all the different Bible translations that render it just like that. some of them even using capital letters to convey the idea of a title. Thus, they endeavor to connect the expression with Exodus 3.14, which is what I have done and what we have done, which is why where the expression needs to be connected. Where, according to their rendering, God refers to himself by the title, I am. However, in the New World Translation, the latter part of John 8.58 reads, Before Abraham came into existence, I have been. The same idea is conveyed by the wording, and they give a couple of other references. Now listen to this. Which rendering? I am or I have been? agrees with the context. The question of the Jews, look at your Bibles, verse 57, to which Jesus was replying had to do with age, not identity. I'm reading from there. The question of the Jews in verse 57 had to do with age, not identity. Jesus' reply logically dealt with his age at the length of his existence. Interestingly, no effort is ever made to apply ego i me to the title of the Holy Spirit. So a little dig at the divinity of the Holy Spirit in there. So here's their answer. What Jesus is answering, what Jesus is giving us in verse 58 answers the question in verse 57. What were they asking in verse 57? How old are you? Now let me ask you a question. In verse 57, were they asking Jesus, how old are you? No. No. Nope. They are mocking Him. What question is Jesus answering in verse 58? Is it the question of verse 57? Or is it the question of verse 53? What's the question of verse 53? Are you greater than Abraham? Whom do you make yourself out to be? That is the question he is answering. The question he is answering is not the question of identity or age. It is the question of identity. In verse 57, they're not even concerned about his age. They're simply mocking the idea that Abraham would rejoice to see him. They've misunderstood what he said entirely. They thought he was referring to having seen physically Abraham sometime. Thought he was out of his mind and saying he's possessed by a demon. So they're mocking him. They're not asking him how old he is. Jesus is not describing to them how long he has existed. Jesus is describing to them who he is. So who is he? He's the I am. The eternally existent God without beginning and without end. That is his identity. And that is what he is claiming to be. How do we know this? Look at verse 59. The Jews do what any God-fearing Jew should have or would have done, and that is they tried to blaspheme somebody who would claim to be God. Verse 59. The Jews understood what he was at, what he was claiming. Therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Now, it wouldn't have been difficult to find a stone, because the construction of the temple had been going on for 46 years, almost as long as our building program. And they would find stones laying all the way around the courtyard. They grabbed stones to pick it up, and they were going to stone him. They were going to stone him for blasphemy. Now, here's the irony of the scene. The irony of the scene is, they think they are honoring God by stoning him. The only way they could honor God is by honoring him. He has claimed to be God, and they now want to stone this one who has claimed to be God, They are accusing God of blaspheming God. And they are trying to stone, in the name of honoring God, they are trying to stone the one that they must honor in order to honor God. They picked up stones to stone Him, and it says Jesus hid Himself and went out of the temple. The word hid Himself is passive. It actually means He was hid. And by that, we don't mean that Jesus was hiding behind people, cowering in a corner out of fear, or that He was darting from pillar to post or that he put on a pair of dark sunglasses and a baseball cap, which always seems to obscure anybody's identity from even their mother, at least in the movies, and that he made his way out of the temple. That was not the idea at all. By his divine power as a supernatural act, he was hid from their eyes. It's not that they were blinded to everything, but they were blinded to his presence. And they could not see him, and he simply walked right through their midst and right out of the temple, and they could not see him. He was obscured from them because his hour has not yet come. He would die at their hands, but not by stoning and not in the temple. He would die at their hands on God's timetable, not theirs, on a hill, not in the temple, and not by stones, but on a cross for the salvation of sinners. Jesus was not going to die before his hour had come. Listen, even when he was handed over to Pilate, Jesus, jesus it's not that Jesus could not escape or Jesus could not get himself released, it's that he would not, because that was the hour. And so with their murderous intentions in place, just like they, they piled upon Stephen in the intention of destroying him and killing him, and they did Stephen, they did this to the Lord Jesus. It is a fit of rage, and he simply obscures himself from their sight and walks right out of the temple peacefully with his disciples. And thus we come to the end of John chapter 8. And here's the beauty of John chapter 8. We have seen Jesus identify himself as the eternally existent God, we have seen him confront unbelievers in their unbelief, and we have seen him identify that these people who thought they had believed in him were really willing to believe anything about him except this one thing, that he was their God. But that was what they must believe in order to be saved. That was the one thing, that was one thing that they would not believe, that he was their God. And so Jesus blinds them to his presence, blinds them to his, his being there, and walks right out of the temple. And as we get into chapter 9 we see Jesus giving them an object lesson on blindness. Right after he has blinded them to his presence, he is going to give them through the man born blind an object lesson about blindness and the reality of spiritual blindness. That's John chapter 9. I can't wait to get to that because that's one of my favorite stories in all of the Gospel of John, but it's not for today. Two things I want to challenge you with as we exit John chapter 8. The first is this. Are you really saved? We've seen this application all the way through the Gospel of John chapter 8. Are you really saved? Are you a believing believer or an unbelieving believer? Are you somebody who professes to know God, but there is no fruit, no evidence, nothing in your life which might indicate that? You are not responsive. You are not obedient. You are not submissive. You are not pursuing holiness. You're not walking with Him. You're not interested in spiritual things because there is no true fruit in your life. If that is the case, you are just like these Jews in John 8, and you are in spiritual peril. The second application is this. Whom do you say that Jesus is? Because you must be able to answer that question correctly, that He is the eternal God. And if the Jesus that you are trusting in is anything less than the eternal I Am in human flesh, then the Jesus that you are trusting in cannot save you because He does not exist. You must believe that Jesus is God. Without that, you will perish, and you will perish everlastingly. Let's pray. Our Father, may this not be the case for any of us who are seated here to think that we are saved and to not to not have any evidence, to think that we are saved and yet to perish everlastingly and eternally. What a horrible situation. We ask God that by Your grace You would draw sinners to Yourself for Your glory, the glory of Your Son, the glory of the Holy Spirit, that You would send Your Spirit to convict us and to encourage us. May we see in our lives evidences of our salvation, a love for You and a love for obedience to You and to Your name. Thank You for what You have shown us in Scripture about Your precious Son. We thank You for sending Him to take take upon Himself flesh and to come and to die and to offer His life as a ransom for many. And thank You that His perfect obedience is ours by faith and that we are seen as righteous before You because of what our God has done for us. Thank You for purchasing us with Your very own blood. It is in Christ's mighty name that we pray.